Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. Well, how fitting, then, that we're the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast, which will highlight NASCAR's history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy Ben White, who has covered the sport since A.J. Allmendinger was in diapers. We're going <laughs> to dish on contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard over the years Famous races, moments, drivers, and cars are going to factor in every episode. You're going to learn about where the sport has been, where it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. And to kick things off, Ben, uh, this being the fifth episode... We've talked about car numbers one, two, three, and four. Seems like it only makes sense that we talk about the five car. There is a ton of history with the number five car in NASCAR. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of the things that you think of when uh, when you see a five car. Well, I tell you the truth, Aaron. Uh, you know, the first thing I see as far as modern day is uh, Hendrick Motorsports, who brought the number five into NASCAR, or re- let's say reemerged the number five into NASCAR in 1984. When he started, Rick Hendrick started uh, what was then called All-Star Racing, yep. and later on it became Hendrick Motorsports. But their first driver was Jeff Bodine, and his first win was at Martinsville Speedway in 1984. And uh, But if you go way further back than that, if you go look back to a gentleman by the name of Cotton Owens, who won the first uh, NASCAR race in car number five, he that win came on August 16th, 1960, and it came at Piedmont, South Carolina Speedway in Spartanburg. And uh, that was a Pontiac he was driving that day. But there's a lot of history to the number five. And we were talking about uh, Jeff Bodine leading into this. Well, actually, Terry Labonte is the driver who has the most wins with the number five with 12. And uh, ironically with Terry, he won the Southern 500 in 1980 as a major surprise driving for Billy Hagan. That day it was a number 44 car. But then ironically, how fate would have it, his final victory of his career was at the 2003 Southern 500 driving the number five Hendrick Motorsports Chevrolet. So he he wins the first race at Darlington and wins his last race at Darlington. I just think that's really cool. But number five has got a lot of history. So why don't we ever have any other drivers named Cotton in NASCAR? I mean, don't you feel like it would be more colorful if we got some guys with with names like Cotton? Oh, yeah, I think so. I think it would be kind of of fun to to try to revisit that. You never know, man. Somebody may come along and – it used to, you know, the cotton label, and I'm not 100% sure. I'll be honest. 
why where the cotton came from i don't i'd know. like to know uh, too yeah I, I, and that's something i guess we need to research sometime but now that you mentioned it, i'm really not sure where the name came from but to come back and listen to another one of our podcasts we'll have you an answer for that for sure absolutely so when i think of the five car uh growing up it was terry labani in the 1990s and that that gorgeous kellogg's car i remember rooting for him to beat jeff gordon in the 96 race for the championship and down the stretch ben you know, Gordon won so many more races in 96 than Terry Labonte did, but it was truly a testament to how, um, just, just how consistent those five guys were with Terry Labonte and Gary Dehart. They won the Charlotte Motor Speedway fall race, the 500 miler when back when the Charlotte's fall race was on an oval, uh, they won that. He ran so well at North Wilkesboro that year and they just barely edged Jeff Gordon. So, I mean, I think Terry won two races that year Jeff Gordon won close to 10. I mean, and it, it just goes to show you that if you have some mechanical problems, even in the old format, I mean, this was kind of similar to last year in the Cup Series with Kevin Harvick winning, it seemed like, every Sunday, and then mm-hmm. he doesn't win the championship. And everybody's like, well, you know, that's not right. It, it used to not be that way. Well, the truth is, it's kind of always been that way. There's always been stories of guys who, you know, won a bunch of races and didn't win the championship. Bill Elliott, 1985, won the Winston Million. Won 11 races, didn't win a championship. Daryl Walter won it. Um, a couple others, Rusty Wallace, 1993, uh, you know, dominated most of the races, didn't win the championship. Dale Earnhardt won it. So there's been several different examples. Uh, to me, I think Terry Labonte in 96, that being his second championship, it had been 12 years since he won his first title. And I just thought it was so cool that somebody could have gone that long without winning a championship. And not just that, he didn't really contend for a championship from 85 to 95 i mean he was in different cars he was driving the uh he drove for junior johnson for a while but they didn't really mesh in the same level that kelly yarborough and daryl waltrip did for junior so they went a whole bunch of races they won some and then he drives for billy hagan for a while i mean his career was really resurrected with rick hendrick and that number five kellogg's car they had a whole lot of success and i think you're going to see somebody else whose career is being resurrected this year in the number five car for rick hendrick and that's Kyle Larson. Ben, how do you think Kyle Larson's going to do this year? I, I think he's going to do really well. I think he's a tremendous driver, uh, tremendous talent on the racetrack. And and it's kind of neat to see the number five come back. No no disrespect to Dale Jr. running the number 88 when he went over to that team. But, you know, the number five is the flagship number for that team. And, and back uh, when the first year they were uh, building cars and getting ready for the 1984 season, I remember Rick Hendrick telling me, he said, I was – actually scared to death because here I have with, uh, you know, only two race cars and I've got a, you know, it's actually, there's a boat shed that's still up there at, at Hendrick Motorsports. And that's where it, that first team was housed with out of. And, uh, Harry Hyde was the first crew chief, you know, he, he had taken, uh, you know, Bobby Isaac to the championship in 1970 yep. and just a great crew chief. And he basically, as this, as the movie days of thunder points out, it's the truth. He was actually plowing his field when Rick Hendrick went out to talk to Rick or to uh, Harry Hyde and say, Hey, would you come back to work for me? So, you know, the number five is a, an excellent number for Kyle Larson to get going again. And, uh, but you know, I'll tell you a quick story about Terry when at about the time he joined Hendrick Motorsports, his, he's even told me, he said, my career wasn't going anywhere. He said, I thought this was going to be it, and I was going to have to find something else. He he drove for Billy Hagen. He left Billy Hagen 
a year or two before he went to Hendrick, he come back to Billy's team, but they just weren't connecting. And I think they were running the number 94 Oldsmobile at the time. And just the things just weren't clicking. So crew chief Gary Dehart calls Terry on the phone and says, uh, Hey, you got a minute and said, Oh yeah, I got plenty of time. You know, I'm, there's not much going on with me. And he said, <laughs> well, I have a question to ask you. He said, would you like to drive the five car at Hendrick Motorsports? And he busted out laughing and said, sure. And I'd love to, you know, I'd love for every day to be Christmas, you know, that kind of thing. And, <laughs> yeah. and he's like, no, no, I'm really serious. Would you like to drive the five car? He said he was totally shocked that the, that he was all in the discussion to drive the car. And, and sure enough, uh, because t- Ricky Rudd had been in the car and I, and I, and went to form his own race team and uh, went to the number 10. But he was just shocked. He said, I really didn't think I was on the radar. As it turned out, it was a really great relationship between Gary and Gary Dehart, the Gary and Terry show. And they won races and they ended up winning the championship. And just one of those Cinderella stories that, that, that developed out of nowhere. Real good. <laughs> And, and, you know, Terry Labonte was such a, a phenomenal race car driver. Yeah, I mean, he, he could win at any racetrack. He was good on the short tracks. He was good on the super speedways. He was good at the mile and a half tracks. He had a ton of talent. When the 1990s superstars are discussed, I feel like Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, Mark Martin, Rusty Wallace, Dale Jarrett get most of the recognition. And there's a reason for that. Those guys were phenomenal in the 1990s. But... Terry Labonte kind of doesn't get enough credit to me for the things he accomplished, in particular, not just beating Jeff Gordon to that championship in 1996, but beating everybody to that championship. You know, there were a lot of guys that were big contenders in 96, Dale Earnhardt among them, uh, and it's such a credit to Terry Labonte and Gary Dehart that those guys were able to do that. Um, And it was only his third year at Hendrick Motorsports, so they had really transformed that program, because you remember in 1992, uh, the Hendrick cars did not perform that well. In 1990, they only won one race. In 93, they only won one race. And then three years later, they've got back-to-back championships, and they would end up getting a third in a row with uh, Gordon in 97, and then a fourth in a row with Gordon in 98. So, you know, Terry Labonte's success really kind of uh, pushed that team to even greater heights. I think I'm going to see the same thing out of Kyle Larson this year. I have said for years that, if I had to choose one driver to pay to see race in the Cup Series, it would be Kyle Larson. He's just an electrifying talent. I think having him in a car that is proven to be championship caliber is going to do some amazing things for his career. And frankly, I can't wait to see what he does with it. Oh, I totally agree. And, you know, his career, uh, you know, hit a, a couple of roadblocks in the last year. And But it's great to see him back. And it's great to see him back in a top car. And, you know, we've been reading a lot about him off uh, off the cup circuit and other successful races that he's won. And he's he's been right there. He's never, he's not lost anything about his talent at all. He's he's refined it, I guess, if you will, because he did stay active on the short tracks and some some uh, sprint car type races and stuff like that. So he's he's really not missed the beat too badly. But I think when we get to Daytona, it's just going to be a brand new start for him. It's it's a great team. You cannot, uh, uh, you know, look back on Hendrick Motorsports and say, well, that's not a strong team. Of course it is. It's one of the very strongest. And one one more point about Terry, though, I think it's he's very much like uh, our driver of the week this week, which is Jimmy Johnson. And I think I don't think Jimmy or Terry maybe got enough credit for what they have done in their careers for one reason: they're too quiet. They're yeah. too easy. They're too vanilla. And I remember back in 1986, 
Terry was driving for Junior Johnson, and he won the Winston at Charlotte Motor Speedway, and it was $200,000. Of course, it's still good, big money today, but in 1986, it was a lot of money. And I remember in the press conference, they were like, Terry, you just won $200,000. Are you, are you excited? He's like, yeah. <laughs> he was just that always was like that. And that was it. It's like, and, yeah, I mean, you have anything else to say to add to that? So, yeah, and I, I think that's part of why, you know, you, you, he's sort of been behind the scenes a little bit when it comes to those types that are always making headlines and that kind of thing. But he was just awesome on the racetrack. And like you pointed out, brought life back to Hendrick Motorsports. But his personality was the same. I guess uh, I don't know if it's the same in the car or not, but he was very aggressive in the car. But you wouldn't you wouldn't imagine Terry Labonte being a race car driver. Maybe you know working at a shoe store or yeah. you know you know something to that effect. I mean, he just was so calm. And still today, you call him on the phone. Hey, how you doing? Real easy to talk to. So yeah, real, great guy. And great, and I think Kyle Larson. Back to Kyle for a second. I think he's going to continue on and and maybe pull off a, a season or two like what Terry did. Yeah, and you know Terry definitely earned the nickname the Iceman. I think he always mm-hmm. kept his cool. I think uh, Kyle Larson probably brings a bit of a, a different dynamic to that Hendrick Motorsports team this year. But I'm looking for some big things out of him. Uh, before we transition, I got to give a shout out to some other guys who were fantastic in the five car. Ricky Rudd won some races in it. Um, Jeff Bodine, as you'd mentioned, certainly, and some of the more recent guys, Mark Martin, Kyle Busch, Casey Kane, also had some success in it. And our driver of the week, as you said, Ben. Uh, you teased it for me. Uh, he's also driven the five car. People forget that. Jimmy Johnson did compete in the NASCAR All-Star Race in 2011, driving the number five Lowe's Chevrolet to uh, accentuate a promotion that Lowe's uh, was doing as a store at that time. He didn't end up winning the race, but I think it's safe to say Jimmy Johnson has won a bunch of races in his career. And as he transitions into IndyCar, I feel like, Ben, he's probably going to win some more. Oh, I think so. Also, no question in my mind. I think it's going to take him a little bit of time to get used to that lighter IndyCar uh, that he'll be driving with a much shorter, uh, you know, st- span as far as the turning radius and such as that on the car. Like I say, a lot lighter than what he's been used to. But let me tell you something. This guy is magical. He can drive anything, and and just be successful. And you know, I think when he first came on the scene, the NASCAR scene. You know, back in 2000, 2001, you know, of course, everyone thought, okay, here's another guy trying to make it on the on the Cup Series. And, I mean, it just exploded with the, uh, you know, the uh, communication that he had with Chad Knauss and with Hendrick. And before you know it, here's the guy that's won, you know, five championships in a row. And it's like, how do you do that in this time? How I could see, okay, maybe some of that going on in the late 60s or maybe 70s. But think about what I'm saying. He pulled off, he and Chad Canals pulled off five championships uh, of the seven, and they're five in a row. It's yeah. like, how do you do that? Every so, season that was competed yeah. when I was in college, he won the championship at all of them. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's unheard of. And you think, where did that magic come from? Well, Jeff Gordon said early in the game that he just thought, this kid has got something. It, you know, and, and of course, at that time, they weren't exactly sure where they were headed with Jimmy, but. I mean, they knew immediately watching him on the track. And in a sense, a package that you try to search for. It's not just the talent on the track. It's the ability to uh, talk with sponsors off the racetrack and represent them well and uh, represent yourself in the media. And, you know, it's just he was just a total package. And at the end of the day, 
you're looking at seven championships, 83 wins. And ironically, he tied Cale Yarborough uh, for the number of wins uh, in his career. And also, he Cale Yarborough was the only driver to win three championships in a row, and he surpassed that by having five. So uh, it's just he and he and Cale kind of parallel each other a little bit in their careers. But just a tremendous driver and a, and a tremendous person, too. When you sit down and talk to Jimmy, if you had no way to know who he was and you lived under a rock and you sit down with him, he would give you all day long talking about what, what you want to talk about. And he was, he was very humble. He wouldn't cram all this in your face and look how great I am. That's not Jimmy Johnson. He, he's just a down to earth, really cool guy. And I, I'm glad to be friends with him. Yeah. And, and I've interacted with Jimmy on numerous occasions and, you know, I, I do have to bring up the point that, you know, Jimmy re- retired from the cup series with 83 wins and, I've often joked with uh, friends and family of mine that, you know, Jimmy Johnson won 83 races in his Cup Series career from 2001 through 2020. And well, he really won 83 through 2017, through the summer 2017. So he goes out and he wins Dover. The next week, I go to Canada for the Canadian Grand Prix, first time I've ever been to Canada. And he never wins another race. So I've often joked that Jimmy Johnson has the curse of me going to Canada <laughs> because as soon as I go up north and come back, he never won another points race. And it was just, it was strange. It was like literally the week after that, and he never won again. Yeah, he won wow. the Bush Clash, but he didn't win a points race. But to your point, Jimmy Johnson just has a fantastic personality. He does not have that, uh, that aura of superiority that I think some people would expect a seven-time champion to have. And frankly, he deserves to have one. He succeeded in everything he's done um, through the years as a driver. You said, you're absolutely right, Ben. Jimmy can drive anything. Not only can he be so quickly, so quick in a cup car, I think he's going to get up to speed pretty quickly in an Indy car. He's driving for a fantastic team with Chip Ganassi and one of the greatest Indy car drivers of all time. Honestly, the Jimmy Johnson of Indy car and Scott Dixon. That guy's going to be his teammate, so that's going to be exciting. But Jimmy has accomplished so much other than those things. The guy was phenomenal in trophy trucks. He was very good in asphalt late models coming up through the ranks. He flies to Bahrain a few years ago to test a McLaren Formula One car with two-time world champion Fernando Alonso. And then by the end of the day, he's only two or three-tenths a lap down from Alonso, who's one of the greatest F1 drivers of all time. Mm. So you could put Jimmy Johnson in anything, in a motorized bar stool, give him a couple hours of practice, and he's just going to run laps around you. The guy is right. he's such a talent, but he's also a true consummate professional in every way. I've worked with Jimmy at press events at the Speedway. And when we had downtime, he was just giving me suggestions on restaurants to try in Charlotte. So I've gone to Barrington's <laughs> yeah. in South Charlotte several times on uh, on Jimmy's suggestion, and uh, it, it's phenomenal. So a free plug to the folks at Barrington's in South Charlotte, uh, Jimmy Johnson. And I told the guy who owns it, Bruce Moffat, owns a series of restaurants in Charlotte, uh, among them Good Food on Montford, which some of my friends like to frequent. But, you know, that was Jimmy's suggestion. He just, I was just like, just off the cuff, we're kind of just standing around. Uh, Jimmy, what are some places I ought to try? You know, I, I live around here, and is there anything I haven't tried? He's like, well, you ever been to Barrington's? I was like, I've never even heard of it. Um, he's like, well, you need to check that out. The place is really good. Mm-hmm. They got all kinds of stuff. And I was like, what do you get? He's like, well, I get the I get the pasta dishes a lot. Channing, it's his wife, Chandra. Uh, she gets, you know, whatever kind of the special is. And so we're just talking about restaurants. Um, but that, that's the way Jimmy is, super down to earth never draws attention to the person that he is and, and the fame that he has. And I'll tell you a quick story, Ben. Haven't told yeah. a lot of people this story. So Lenny Batiki, uh, one of my colleagues at Charlotte Motor Speedway and a longtime friend and mentor to me personally, 
Well, Lenny was an executive with Richard Childress Racing for much of the 1990s and, and the early 2000s. And one of the things that Lenny was tasked with was hiring potential talent to drive for Childress. You know, you start them out in the, the, the ARCA or, or trucks or the Bush series and you bring them up. And he was actually a big proponent of bringing Kevin Harvick to Richard Childress Racing. And it's safe to say that Kevin Harvick has uh, proven himself to be very worthy of that opportunity that he got. But there was a time when, you know, Lenny would, and I think this is this is good of any scout. This is in NASCARs, this is in any sport. Broaden your horizons, expand them, look outside the box. Lenny would think outside the box. So he is going around trying to find a guy. He's, he's got a guy. He races trophy trucks. His name is Johnson. He's out in California. Been doing it a long time. Really successful. So he invites him and this group out to dinner. Well, it's Ricky Johnson. He's a really successful trophy truck racer. So he's trying to woo Ricky Johnson to sign with Hendrick and, I mean, to sign with, with Richard Childress and to, you know, maybe kickstart a NASCAR career. And so mm-hmm. Ricky's thinking about it and, you know, they go to dinner and, you know, um, Ricky brings his buddy with him and he's like, yeah, this is my friend Jimmy, you know, and everybody's <laughs> like, yeah, hey, yeah, nice to meet you, man. So anyway, Ricky, tell me, you know, what, what, what would you want out of a, out of a prospective NASCAR opportunity? didn't even realize nobody thinks at the time that that's jimmy johnson and there was a bidding war you know not long after this so there's still a little little time passes before jimmy gets signed but you know the late great dale earnhardt really wanted to pair jimmy johnson uh with dale jr and and it would have been a very good pairing because i I don't like to play too much of the hypothetical card but i'm gonna play that card for second ben so you gotta bear with me yeah sure jimmy johnson was sponsored in the late 90s by Penzoil. He drove the number 44 car in what was called the ASA series, which was super exciting. If you've never heard of it, you ought to go look them up. It was really fun to watch. Jimmy drove the number 44 Penzoil car in ASA. So if he would have signed with DEI, it's easy. He's already got the Penzoil sponsorship. If they want to run a second Penzoil car with Steve Park or give Park a new sponsor, there's kind of that in already. But Jeff Gordon and Rick Hendrick snapped him up before... Uh, Jimmy could go to DEI, and the rest is history. But yeah, you know, Lenny joked with me about that, and about you know, sitting at the dinner table. Jimmy Johnson's there, and it was just at a time where nobody really knew him yet. He hadn't yeah. proven himself in the asphalt world. He's just there as a buddy with Ricky, and they didn't end up getting Ricky Johnson. But he did hire this guy named Harvick, and they had a bunch of success. Oh, so yeah. you know, he he certainly did well. It just so happened that Jimmy ended up at Hendrick Motorsports. And, and one of the reasons that he is our, our driver of the week is, you know, Jimmy's fresh off a very strong performance in the Rolex 24 hours at Daytona, where his uh, Daytona Prototype International car, the number 48 Ally machine, very nearly won the race. So Jimmy hasn't won Rolex 24 yet. He's come close on multiple occasions. I think he'll end up going back there at some point. But, man, you put this guy in any kind of machinery, Ben, and, and he's going to tear it up. And I say that. Yeah. Uh, not literally, but very figuratively. Oh, yeah, sure. And and you know what? He reminds me of a very close friend of mine, of course, Bobby Allison. Yeah. And and Bobby was so good at that kind of thing. He could get in a Can-Am car. He could get in a, a an IROC car. He could get in an Indy car. And then with a, with a very short window of time, had it at a place to where he was turning some seriously good laps in him to the point where the more, more times than not, the driver that was assigned to that car – was not real happy with him because it made he made him look bad because he was just that good as a as a race car driver. But you know something a, a more just a little bit more about Jimmy here. 
and a lot of people don't realize this, his aspirations, and the same with Jeff Gordon, and I didn't know this until recently, Jeff and Jimmy both aspired to go to IndyCar racing and not, not NASCAR. Really? And, yeah, and because, you know, Jimmy went, well, of course, growing up in California, the the off-road stuff technically is an open-wheel type car, so he was really following IndyCar stuff. And same with Jeff Gordon from Pittsburgh, Indiana, lots and lots of wins in the sprint cars. Uh, he was a, a native uh, Californian, but by moving over to Indianapolis, of course, everybody thought of him as the, you know, as, as someone of Indiana uh, background and still immensely popular in Indiana. But yeah, he was not unlike towards, Tony Stewart. Right, exactly. And he was leaning towards uh, an IndyCar career, and as as fate would have it, and that's what's so so interesting about this. The sport that we love is that, you know, just a phone call here, uh, a brush of a conversation there, those types of things. And these and this, this is where these guys end up. They end up in some of these great rides. And, and I often think about that as well to say what would have happened if Dale Earnhardt did really go to Junior Johnson at one oh, time. Yeah. It was very close to going to Junior's team and it didn't work out. Right. And, you know, just these these guys that had the ability to drive anything it teamed up with particular team owners you wonder would they have been successful or would they have not and it, it i mean there's no way no way that would of course that you could visit that too much other than mentally you just think what if what if that would have happened so anyway it was just just some interesting stories about the guys that we've watched race all these years and, and they're just immensely talented and to be in the cup series you have to be all 40 of those guys are immensely talented for sure you got to be Absolutely. And uh, speaking of people who are immensely talented, Jimmy Johnson, you know, for me, almost at the top. He's right up there with Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, Richard Petty, David Pearson, all the legends. One of the places that Jimmy Johnson had a lot of success, which is you could say for almost any track in NASCAR, is also our track of the week. So we'll transition into the track of the week. And our track of the week is... Atlanta, Atlanta Motor Speedway. Atlanta Motor Speedway <laughs> out in Hampton, Georgia. It, it's not really that close to Atlanta, but it's like 20, 30 minutes away if you don't have traffic. Uh, you and I, I believe, have covered quite a few races there. Yeah. Um, well, I haven't covered them. I worked in public relations there. I haven't covered them as a journalist. Um, but that place has so much history. It was known for a long time as the Atlanta International Raceway before Obert and Smith purchased the racetrack in 1990 and wound up reformatting it into the quad oval that you see today in 1997, one of the fastest tracks in the Cup Series. I believe when Dale Jr. won the pole there in 2010, it was the fastest lap for a COT car, even faster than on the restricted plate tracks. That's how quick it is around there. And it is, uh, to put it mildly, it is a bit of a bumpy surface, but I'll tell you what, the race fans love that racetrack. They're very proud of it, and the drivers love racing there. It eats up tires. I feel like you need a, you could use a second set of tires after two or three laps of racing there, Ben. But, mm -hmm. you know, a ton of history there. Uh, when you think of Atlanta, what's your favorite race or your favorite moment that you've seen or heard there? Well, it's no question, Aaron. The one race that comes to my mind before the track was reconfigured was, of course, the 1992 Hooters 500 when you had so many storylines. And I'll try to go through them very quickly, but you had like seven, eight drivers that could technically – uh, win the championship that year. Davey Allison, all he had to do is finish, I believe it was like 16th maybe. It was All he had to do is finish, and he was going to be the champion. It was the first race for Jeff Gordon, the last race for the King, Richard Petty. 
And then to top it off, with top the cake with a little bit of ice cream, you had Bill Elliott, Alan Kowicki battling lap after lap after lap for the championship. And even my close friend, Ken Martin, who now works with uh, NASCAR Productions, he was working for ESPN at the time. And and uh, they were looking at him, Larry Newber and Bob Jenkins, that kept looking and Benny Parsons looking at him like, who's going to win this thing? And every lap it would change. And the way it came down was that Alan Kowicki had led a lap and led the most laps. And it came down to a 10-point difference between he and Bill Elliott, even though Bill won the race. Alan came out 10 points ahead. And I'm telling you what, it was one of those days I was there to cover it. It was one of those days that you, you couldn't blink because things changed so quickly. And I got to say this about our buddy, Davey Allison. When he did crash, he and, and Ernie Irvin got into Ernie spun in front of him. Yeah, blew a tire, I think. Blew a tire and nothing, you know, nothing Ernie could do and blew the tire and was right in the path of Davey. You know, after a long, hard season that year of crashes and, and it was like feast or famine for Davey, he didn't have, he was so classy about the whole thing. He was... Uh, just amazingly calm after we didn't after the race we didn't win it we'll come back next year and win the championship and sadly he passed away in uh, in july and was not able to uh to win the championship and and again sadly alec kawiki lost his life on april 1st in an airplane crash so it was just that's the race that comes to mind for me but i remember covering the race back before the configuration was changed and right it was quite different than what it is today. And then the very first time we went there in 97, Jeffrey Bodine turned a lap. Now get this now, turned a lap around Atlanta at 197.478 to get the pole. That, that was blazing fast at that racetrack. That's almost, that's almost like Daytona a mile longer than what Atlanta is. And they had fresh pavement. They had great tires 197 around that place and uh, no one uh, everybody thought the scoring was wrong should have been like 177 <laughs> no uh -uh. Yeah. 197 and it was amazing to see him pull that off and uh yeah atlanta's a great track i love going down there it's not too far from where i live in salisbury and uh, a few hours very quickly matter of fact in my early days of racing i would go to atlanta uh get up about three in the morning go to the track right do the race write my stuff and then drive back after, you know, getting finished late later in the night, and then go to my real job. So it was a lot of those weekends before. What a day! That is a long know, day, man. Very long day. Yeah, my that Monday is working at whatever I could do to stay in racing at that time. This is back in the well early eighties. Yeah. And uh, man, I'm telling you, I, I would do that more times than not. Just get go down and drive, come back, and go, then go to my real job. So. I love Atlanta. It's a great track, and I hated to hate to see Ed Clark go. You know, the longtime president of the Speedway. He retired, oh, yeah. but yep. still a great friend. So, good, a great track. If you ever want to see a great race, that's a, that's a great one to go to. Ed has a, a, a dynamic personality. He's a he's a big figure in the sport, and, and mm -hmm. always will be even after his retirement. I think he's uh, he's influenced a whole lot of people. He got his start at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Was there for a long time before he took over at Atlanta, and they had so many great races under Ed's watch, a few others. I think a lot of people think of uh, Kevin Harvick edging Jeff Gordon in 2001, just three races after Dale Earnhardt's untimely mm -hmm. passing. But the year before that, the spring race, Dale Earnhardt just barely beat Bobby Labonte to the finish line. That was a classic finish. Um, 
to credit the folks uh, at Atlanta for for doing that reconfiguration, it really put together some some incredible finishes. Uh, ben, just kind of one uh, post mortem to your note about that ninety two Hooters five hundred. I've rewatched that race a bunch of times. I remember listening to it live on MRN, um, but I every time I watch the the late stages of that race, it aggravates me so much when Davey gets in a wreck because mm. you just had that feeling. He just kind of and, and this is not a slide against Kawicki, who did everything he needed to do to win the championship. Which, by the way, back to our original discussion, Bill Elliott won more races, but it came down to somebody else winning it and. I just, I just, you just felt like Davey just deserved it, man. It was just, mm-hmm. it was such a painful loss that he didn't get that championship after overcoming so many things. He got hurt really bad in the Winston that year in a race that he won. He'd broken his ribs. He lost his brother in a crash at Michigan. He almost lost his dad four years before that. He had just overcome so much. You felt like, oh, he just deserved that championship. But that's racing. That is that is absolutely yeah. how it goes. Sometimes you get the breaks. He did win quite a few races. He could have won the Winston Million that year as well. Um, came up just short in a rain-shortened event at Darlington. But Davy Allison was absolutely a phenomenal race car driver. And he still had uh, some very strong runs at Atlanta in his career. Jimmy Johnson is a guy who had a bunch of successful runs. He won five races at Atlanta Motor Speedway in his career. Uh, also, his last two wins at Atlanta coming back-to-back in 2015 and 2016. And it was by this point, Ben, that the racetrack surface was it was breaking up so much. It was becoming so bumpy that you know it was just eating tires up in a way very similar to Darlington and to another old classic, Rockingham, where mm-hmm. guys would, you know, basically start praying on the crew ch- on, to their crew chief after eight laps of green flag racing. Can I please come in and take four new tires now? This is ridiculous. But it truly separates the guys who can run competitively, not just on fresh tires, but over the course of an entire fuel run. Atlanta's always been very good about, you know, separating the, the guys uh, who can do that over a long fuel run versus the ones who are only best at you know in certain circumstances and it's a real driver's racetrack and they've had a whole bunch of races there not just in nascar but also they've had quite a few indycar races through the years uh some of them early when you were covering uh cart had some races there and then the indycar series in the early 2000s had a had a few races there too and you know frankly ben it's just that place is so fast. I mean, it, it's amazing that the that Jeff Bodine in '97 didn't go quicker than the Indy cars oh, when he yeah. went around there that fast. For sure, and it still blows my mind that he could get around that place. Matter of fact, I think it kind of blew his mind a little bit too because it was pretty fast. But you know, sadly, we've lost some folks at Atlanta on the old configuration. Uh, a couple that come to mind was there was a driver named Terry Schoonover who lost his life in 1984. It was a single car crash. He was uh, a rookie driver coming into the sport. Yep. Uh, sadly, we lost him. And then Grant Adcox, who did a lot of ARCA racing there at Atlanta and, and had a car dealership in the Atlanta area and well-known in the Georgia area, we lost him uh, in 1989, the same day that Rusty Wallace won his lone championship. And that was what was so cool about Atlanta, too, is that, for many years, is where the season would end. It would end at Atlanta. Oh, yeah. In the years when it was called Atlanta International Raceway, we saw Dale Earnhardt win championships there. We saw Rusty win his. Uh, there was so many great races at that track. And, you know, another part of it, too, is where it's it's not right in the center of NASCAR as far as being in the Charlotte area, but it's not too far away either. 
and it's it's a nice little drive. It's about a four and a half to five hour drive. It's kind of like going from Charlotte to Richmond, mm-hmm. but just an amazing racetrack. And and you're right, what you said earlier hit it dead on the nail. When they added, when Bruton Smith added that little dogleg to stay in line with the Charlotte Motor Speedway, because that was the original, uh, and Texas too. That was that original track configuration. You know, think about this. If that dogleg had not been there, would Dale Earnhardt have won his race by a bumper over Terry or Bobby Labonte? Would Harvick have won, you know, the race that he did in 2001 over Jeff Gordon? So that little extra uh, maybe changed the outcome of the uh, of the race more than once. And but it, it's a fun track. If you ever if you've not been to Atlanta, you should go at least once because it's a great track. Yeah, and you get two chances to do it now since they're uh, back to mm-hmm. having two race dates again. But uh, to, to piggyback that point, Ben, uh, you brought up something very valid about the fact that, you know, they, they redid this. Uh, they redid the facility and, and changed the layout, adding that dogleg. What that also did was it enabled them to pave part of the infield grass area and turn it into a legend car track, not unlike the quarter mile at Charlotte Motor Speedway, which was based in layout terms at least. You can't really replicate Bowman Gray in any way, um, but in terms of, of, of track length and everything, it was based on Bowman Gray. They brought that also to Atlanta Motor Speedway, and that's where Joey Logano, uh, already, who's already won a Cup Series championship, he's like 30 years old, that's where Joey got his start, was winning races in legend cars at Atlanta Motor Speedway. So it's not just a place where Cup Series drivers have enjoyed a lot of success. It's also been a place that's kind of been a catalyst for the careers of drivers before they got to the Cup Series. And, you know, Chase Elliott's another one. But in terms of guys who had a ton of success racing legend cars at Atlanta, uh, they have an illustrious history there that almost rivals that of Charlotte Motor Speedway. But Joey Logano, to me, is, is, is at the top of the guys when I think of legend car racers who were really good at Atlanta and became phenomenal Cup Series racers. Joey Logano is at the top. So i got to ask you this, Ben. Uh, away from legend car racing, but still talking about Atlanta, mm-hmm. you used to have these days where you'd get up at 3 a.m., cover the race, come home, which, I, my gosh, okay, I don't know how yeah, you do that. I did that more than once, yeah. And, and maybe that's just, you know, I had a ton of energy and I think back to, you know, working late nights and then getting up and going to school and think it was nothing. I, I don't know. I could, I could swing that now. Uh, I'm not, I don't really want to try. <laughs> right. But so they're racing in July this year. Would, would a younger Ben White have considered getting up at 3am and going to cover a race in Atlanta, Georgia in July, which is about as hot as the equator and then driving home. Would you try that now? Oh, if, you were, I would. if you were younger, if I was, even. I, I'm no question. If I was uh, about uh, hmm, 40 years younger, yeah, I just turned 60 this year. This is back when I was about 23, 24 when I was doing that. And it took some effort, okay? It wasn't easy. and But I thought, I love racing so much. I just can't miss Atlanta. I got to be there. And But to answer your question, yeah, I think I would do it again if I was a little bit younger. I would do it if I had to today, but it would be a really tough Monday after work. No <laughs> doubt, man. But, uh, yeah, but, you know, racing in Atlanta, and I'm not – I'm pretty sure. I'm 99% sure about this. There were other times – in NASCAR history where they did have races in Atlanta in July, but that's really hot. I mean, when you're trying to uh, work on a race car and get a car to perform in that type of temperature, I mean, you're talking mid nineties at, you know, some of this, some of these races, oh, and, at least. yeah, that's yeah. going to be a real factor uh, as far as getting the cars to set up and, 
and all that. But yeah, it's it's going to be different. There's no question because here, you know, for years we've been down in Atlanta in what early February or early March. Yep. And or excuse me, I, I guess it would be early March, and it would be really cold. There was a matter of fact, I remember a weekend there in in Atlanta when it snowed blue blazes. It snowed four feet. And, of course, we weren't able to race that weekend. It was sometime, uh, I don't remember the exact year, but it's like mid-90s. It was a blizzard of 92 or 93. Okay. And growing up right. in Valdez, North Carolina, um, we got like five or six feet of snow. It was unlike wow. anything I had ever seen before or since. Um, yep. and, and that was in western North Carolina. So, I mean, it was all over the southeast. So, yeah, if I'm not mistaken, they had to postpone the race for a week or two. Still ended up being a pretty good one. I think this was 93. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, there's been all kinds of things happen there right. as it is. I've actually had to wear a jacket every time I've gone to Atlanta cause I've gone for the, the, uh, the early in the season spring race when it can be a little bit chilly, but you know, I've been lucky that every time I've seen a race there and, uh, and seen qualifying, seen practice, seen the Xfinity series and the truck guys that it's always been sunny. That's definitely the most important thing. But so this brings up a question I've got. When you look at what Atlanta motor speedway is going to be having with that race in July this year on that kind of a surface, uh, assuming they don't do a last minute paved job. Uh, I've got to think that guys with dirt track racing backgrounds who have the experience of handling cars that slip slide all over the place are going to have a huge advantage when they race Atlanta in July, because number one, it's an abrasive racetrack surface. Everybody agrees on that. Number two, Mm -hmm. if it's 95 degrees and high humidity, which there's a distinct possibility it will be, it's going to be a slick surface on those tires. It's going to be whoever can handle the lack of grip best is going to do well. And I think the guy that we were talking about in that number five car, if I had to pick, we're months out. But I think that Kyle Larson has a very distinct possibility of winning that race just because it, I think it's going to be somebody who could handle a really loose, uh, poorly gripping race car in a lot of heat. Kyle Larson of the current cup guys is one I would say to watch if Jimmy Johnson was racing it, he'd probably still be my pick for his, his, his incredible skill in that. But you know, there's others, Kyle Busch can't can him out. Chase Elliott, like Kyle can win anywhere. Uh, When it's just so rare to me, Ben, that like you don't normally see something with all these little difficulties thrown in in one race that, that to me, yeah, you've got, a lack of practice and qualifying in every race this year, with the exception of the Daytona 500, the Coca-Cola 600, and the races on, at least to the Cup Series, new venues. But now you've got Atlanta, so they're not going to have practice, and they're not going to have qualifying. It could mm. be 97 degrees on race day with no track time and an abrasive surface, a slick surface that guys, you know, unless something changes, won't have tested on. It's going to be so unpredictable, I think, honestly, that's going to be the most challenging race of the year for these guys. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think what you're looking at in a nutshell is in the past you had cold and wet. And sadly, Atlanta has been plagued for whatever reason where if there was a cloud that needed a place to land, it would land over the Atlanta Motor Speedway. And I went down – I've gone down there many times, and it would be a, a wet weekend. Sometimes we'd get it in. Sometimes we wouldn't. But so we, so now what we're doing is we're, we're trading wet and cold – for hot and slick and you're dead on the money on that too as far as uh, kyle larson he that's what he's done all his life is yep. is sling a car into a turn 
around five or six other guys who are slinging cars in the turns. And it's just, it's a piece of cake in a, in a sense that he's used to that. There are some drivers who aren't used to that, who didn't grow up that way. And yeah, it's going to, he'll be a, a factor. I mean, a big factor in the race. Another one that you mentioned, I, I was thinking before you said him was Chase Elliott. Chase has got something that he can adapt pretty well to anywhere he goes. Plus right it's now, his home track, right? So you know he wants right. to win. Yeah, it's his home track. Got a lot of fans there. Um, of course, as of late, being really, really good on road courses, but that's going to play in his favor also. Anybody that's good on a road course, in my opinion, I think it's going to be good at Atlanta too because you got to adapt to rights and lefts. You're not going to do rights and lefts in Atlanta, but you need to be able to, to drive a loose car, looser the better. If you're used to driving that, then I think you're going to succeed really well. The, the temperature is going to play a factor. Just go ahead and write that in. The tires <laughs> yeah. are gonna they can't be slit they can't be too hard because that's just gonna be horrible. So they gotta work on that now. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's gonna be I'm it's glad be I'm wild. not doing it. Let's put it that way. I'm glad I'm in the media center of the press box. I'm glad I'm not I don't have my name on the roof line or those things because it's, it'd be a caution waiting to happen if I was out there, I promise. Well, you said not going right and left. I think if somebody's car is pretty loose, they're probably going to be turning right as much <laughs> as a turn left, especially coming off turn four, man. I've seen those guys hanging out there. Um, but, yeah, th- that's going to be an absolute show, I think. Another race that, to me, is it's, it's more recent in NASCAR's history. Uh, it flies under the radar a little bit. It is our race of the week. Our race of the week for this week is... The 2016 Bank of America 500 at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Uh, ben, I was at that race. I was working at, in the public relations department before my move to marketing. Uh, you were there covering it. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure we we talked on a couple occasions that weekend about what oh, yeah, the program sure story was going to be for the next year. Yeah, um, yeah. But which I love doing, by the way. Well, well, thank you. Um, so, uh, um, the thing that sticks out to me about that race. Our, our man, Jimmy Johnson, the story of this episode, if you, if you don't like Jimmy Johnson, first of all, the fault is yours. Second of all, I'm sorry, but there's a lot to talk about with Jimmy Johnson and his career. Jimmy Johnson won this race. Not a big surprise. It's at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Jimmy Johnson was in the race. He probably won it. He won it. But Ben, there's something really interesting about Jimmy Johnson's last two wins at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Do you know what they are? No, I don't. And I'm sure you're going to tell me because you, you teased me with a little bit before we came on the air. So in Jimmy Johnson's last two races that he won at Charlotte Motor Speedway, they were both the fall race at Charlotte. They were the Bank of America 500. This one was the penultimate time that we raced on the Oval in the fall. So this, uh, so we, we've been running the Oval at Charlotte in the last few years. It, it's, it's been a smashing success, but this was one of the last times that we, we raced on the Oval in the fall. It was the Bank of America 500, not the Bank of America Roval 400, but in Jimmy Johnson's last two wins at Charlotte, 2016 fall race, 2009 fall race, the top three were exactly the same. What are the odds of that? I know. That's wild. Uh, so that's- Jimmy won both, Ben. Matt Kenseth finished second in both. And Casey Kane finished third in both. Well, maybe that says something about the talent of the three guys that you just mentioned. It could be. Because, they, they all won yeah. races at Charlotte, but none of them won as many as Jimmy did. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's the first thing that comes to mind. That's it. That's an interesting fact. And I didn't know that. But it, it also states how that racetrack caters to a particular driving style, because you're right. Matt Kenseth actually got his first career win as a World 600 or Coca-Cola 600 winner. That's right. Um, and I believe Casey did also. 
I think Casey's it first was, was at Richmond, but I mean, he, you know, as many okay. have said, his best racetrack in NASCAR, no question, was Charlotte Motor Speedway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was, I mean, that, but to think about that for a second, you got Jimmy, Matt, and Casey. They all had success at the track. And yeah, I could see it is odd. Uh, it's interesting, though, that it's hard. It, you're right. It's hard to duplicate something back to back like that with the with those those three guys. That's a very interesting point. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, and it just goes to show the fact that, you know, the, the best drivers at Charlotte Motor Speedway throughout history, uh, they, they didn't change throughout, you know, in their careers. Uh, the race that Jimmy won at Charlotte between those two, the Coca-Cola 600 in 2014, Matt Kenseth finished third. So they almost had the same one-two finish his last three wins. And, you know, those guys just naturally have an ability to perform around Charlotte Motor Speedway. Ben, I think you nailed it when you said that it, it takes a certain driving style. Some guys did not have a lot of success at Charlotte. Dale Earnhardt Jr. was phenomenal at Charlotte the first three years of his Cup Series career. He won the pole for his first 600. He won the All-Star Race as a rookie, the first guy to ever do that. Only one of two two have ever done it. Uh, and very nearly won the All-Star Race again in 02. But, you know, Dale Jr. never won a 600. Tony Stewart never won a 600. There, you know, there are there is a lot of guys who had some success at Charlotte Motor Speedway, but for whatever reason, and in their case has been it was mostly Jimmy Johnson was the reason. But yeah. you know they they didn't they didn't replicate the success they had at other tracks. I mean Dale Jr. and Tony won so many times at Daytona, and you know they were very strong on the short tracks as well. But didn't have a ton of success at Charlotte Motor Speedway, and frankly it's just because they came around during the Jimmy Johnson era of dominance. Uh, but I wanted to talk about this 2016 Bank of America 500 for a little bit. The reason being, during the day, not unlike what you're going to see at Atlanta Motor Speedway and several races early in the season, slick racetrack during the day, uh, really, it's difficult for drivers to get a handle on. That's why you see the same people up front every year, because they figured out something the others haven't. And I'm not even just saying the drivers. I mean the crew chiefs, too. It's a big credit to Chad Knauss and you know the other guys like Kenny Francis that they could set up race cars uh, another one that comes to mind certainly is Ray Evernham. They could put together race cars that the driver could could jump in and instantly be competitive from the get-go. And that's very difficult to do at Charlotte Motor Speedway. You've got to have a good driver and a good engineering crew chief who can build a setup. And certainly Jimmy and Shaq announced had it that day. Uh, that race for me, Ben, is also, it, it's memorable. I, I rewatched it recently. They had a big wreck on a restart late in the race. Austin Dillon plowed the wall. Chase Elliott crashed. It uh, it was a day where some of the chase drivers, and I'm going to call it the chase because it was the chase then. Uh, they, you know, they encountered quite a bit of trouble, but Jimmy Johnson survived that. And what did he do at the end of the year, Ben? He won, he won a championship. He won yeah. a championship. Yeah, he won yeah. his seventh championship. So, you know, it, it, there there have been several examples of drivers winning the fall race at Charlotte and winning the championship. Kevin Harvick did it in 2014. Jimmy did it in 2009. Jimmy did it in 2016. Uh, oh, and uh, Chase Elliott has also had a little bit of success at Charlotte's Roval, too, you could say. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, that race I thought was pretty interesting. It was coming at a time when you were seeing a different era come into the sport. Chase Elliott was in his first full season as a Cup Series driver. Dale Jr. was injured. He wasn't racing. Jeff Gordon had just recently uh, retired. Greg Biffle was about to retire. Carl Edwards was about to retire. Tony Stewart was about to retire. But there was this era of Chase Elliott, 
of uh, Kyle Larson, Austin Dillon coming up. Eric Jones would make his you know, rookie season get started the year after that. It was really kind of a, the, the last uh, the last hurrah for some of these guys in the Cup Series as far as the uh, the amount of success they were having. And and it's crazy to think about the fact that Jimmy only won. I think five races the rest of his career after that, which is which is just incredible to consider. Uh, and two of those were a few months later. He won them in 2017, and then that was it. So, you know, it, it just mm-hmm. goes to show you that if a guy can get a handle on a racetrack, he can be very successful there. But that doesn't mean it translates to other racetracks. Right, that's true. And you know, a couple that come to mind for me as you were talking, if you think back to 1993, October of '93. Mm-hmm. Davy Allison had sadly passed away. Ernie Irving gets in the number 28 car for Robert Yates Racing. Yep. And I don't remember the exact number, but I, he led all but like seven or eight laps of that race. Oh, he blitzed Ernie, the Ernie field. Did. Blitzed him. Right. Bl- yeah, absolutely, on a different time zone. And then you had the same thing happen with Martin Truex. Uh, not in, in recent years, he did the same thing. That was also just, in 16. Yeah, that was the race at Charlotte before Jimmy won there in the fall. Right. And he just blistered the place. So I think once you find that little thing and we're not talking big, we're talking a little tiny something that, you know, maybe a way they get into a turn or maybe something that the crew chief has discovered or whatever, coupled with that incredible driving talent, suddenly you're gone. I mean, you're like I say, you're in a different time zone and your your car. That's the point when you're starting to pray, okay, please, God, don't let something break because you're so (laughs) far ahead. Yeah. And that. You know, that it's interesting. And, you know, Jamie McMurray comes to mind, too. I think uh, 2002 when Sterling Marlin was hurt. Oh, yeah. Nobody knew who, who Jamie McMurray was, had no clue, had to look him up in the books. He was an Xfinity driver, but I mean, he had done a lot. Gets in the number 40 Chip Ganassi racing car and to help Sterling out because he had had a neck injury and goes out and wins the race. And that set his career on uh, on fire also. So, yeah, Charlotte has been a great track. And I think there's just a handful of guys that master that place each time they go. And for whatever it is, it could, it's a very a variety of reasons, I'm sure. But they've all got a common denominator is the fact that they just could get around that racetrack not for 10 laps, not for 50 laps, but the whole, you know, the whole time that they need to be and and be in position to win. Ben, I'm going to take credit for Jamie McMurray's win. And I'm going to tell you why. So the (laughs) I haven't told Jamie this, but if I get a chance, I'm going to. So the first time I had ever been in the infield in the pits for a NASCAR race was the weekend of the 2002 fall race at Charlotte. One of our, uh, went with my dad and one of our close family friends who, uh, who had some passes from Hendrick to go in the pits. And so I'm walking around, I got my little Kodak disposable camera because remember this is 2002. We didn't have cell phones. You know, this was even before the digital camera age of me being in college. And the fact that me bringing up digital cameras now makes me feel older than I think I should feel, but, (laughs) but that's another story. So I had this, I'm walking around taking some pictures. And one of the first ones that I took, it's the day of the Xfinity race. Um, and I'm walking down pit road and I stop and I snap a picture of the number 27 car in the Bush series. It was Jamie McMurray. So mm-hmm. I'm telling, you know, my, my dad's buddy Scott. So he's like, so why are you taking a picture of him? And I was like, that guy's going to be really good, you know, pretty soon. I've got a feeling he hasn't done much yet, but I think he's going to be really good. I still have that picture of the 27 mm-hmm. car. It's sitting on pit road before the race. If they even got their pit board in front of it, you can see it plain as day. And, a little more than 24 hours later, Jamie McMurray wins his first Cup Series race. So 
Jamie, if uh, if you ever get to listen to this, if I ever if I ever tell you, you can express your gratitude to me in a multitude of ways. But <laughs> I, so I snapped right, so. that picture, and Jamie McMurray proved me right by winning his first Cup race. He didn't win the Xfinity race, but he won the Cup race the next day. Yeah, yeah. So now here, let's recap that. So you ended up create really helping Jamie in his career, and you pretty well destroyed Jimmy's career. Is that right? <laughs> uh, well, I mean. Yeah, you just make me feel bad now, but you're not wrong. <laughs> so, you know, and I've been, I've covered so many races that Jimmy won. So yeah. I know I wasn't his bad luck at Charlotte because. I'm just kidding with yeah, you. Yeah, oh, I'm I just know, kidding with I you. Know. And, and you've got an argument. And again, man, I, I don't say this out of pride when I tell people, I'm like, you know, and I realized this a couple of years ago. It was after we come back from Canada, it was a year or two later. I was like, people were starting talking about Jimmy having not won. And I was like, God, his last win was the week before he we went to Canada, and he still hasn't won yeah. since. So yeah. my get-out-of-jail-free card for that one, Ben, is he did win the Bush Clash. He didn't win a points race, but he did win the Bush Clash after we went to Canada. Otherwise, right. the Jimmy Johnson Canada curse is my fault because maybe he would have won a bunch more. Maybe he'd have 100 wins if we didn't go to Canada. But I really yeah, wanted yeah. to check out an F1 race, and unfortunately – Jimmy's trips to Victory Lane took a big hit because of it. Yeah, well, if your if your tires have been flat for quite a while and more than <laughs> once, it could be could be Jimmy. But I got one I want to share with you. It just came to mind. It was one of the funnier stories in that same vein. I had worked with we were talking about Terry Labonte earlier. I was yeah. I worked with Terry's pit crew to do a magazine story on what it's like to be a crew member. This is 1986 at Rockingham, March of 86, okay? And so I'm in pretty much in the way most of the time, but they're the guys are nice to me and let me do some things and turn a few wrenches and stuff. And by the way, that's where I met Bobby Labonte for the very first time because oh, he was so a cool. crew member. Yeah. Very, very young Bobby Labonte. So anyway, we get to the point where we're about to qualify, and, and Terry's car number is number 44. So a guy named Pete Wright, who worked with Bobby for years and worked for Junior Johnson, neat, neat guy. Uh -huh. He's he's retired from racing now, but super neat crew member. And he said, well, we've, we've taken a vote, and we're going to let you do something cool. We're going to let you pull the number out of the hat to see where we qualify. Are you now, serious? Back then, yeah, they, they take a hat, and they put numbers in. And, and right. the, the key to the thing is you don't want to be in the top 10 because the track's too hot. And by the time you get to the end of the session of qualifying, you've got rubber on the track and that kind of thing that's going to help you do better. Ben, please so tell Pete, me you didn't draw one. No, but I almost almost that good. And so, <laughs> so what happened was Pete looked at me and said, all right, here's the deal. If you pick something in the top 10, we're going to hang you in the truck. It's like, <laughs> okay, I get it. I get it. Yeah. All right. So I'm, I'm, my hand's shaking here, okay? I don't want to let the guys down. They've been really kind to me all weekend. So believe this or not. Okay, I don't know where to call it, give the good Lord credit, whatever. I pulled out his car number was 44. I pulled out 44, and there were 44 cars in the field. As it turned out, Terry Labonte won the pole for that race because I pulled number 44 out of the hat, who happens to be his car number. So, hey, I mean, that's my only claim to fame. And then Pete said to me in a very dry voice, he's like, eh. Okay, we'll let you stick around another day or two. And <laughs> I told that story to Terry, and Terry had never heard that. I spoke to him on the phone recently. He said, no kidding, no kidding. I really – he was laughing the whole time I was telling it to him. But he said, I never had heard – I remember you helped us. 
but I never had heard that story. So it came out what 35 years later or something. But yeah, I was just, I was shocked that I pulled number 44 and there were only 44 cars in the field and he went out last and won the pole. So there you go. I'm just, that's my claim to fame. I've got to look it up now. I'm curious where Terry finished. Cause I was hoping you're going to tell me he won. Well, uh, but Morgan Shepard won a spring race, but guess what? And it is the truth. And I meant to say it, Terry did win the race. Okay. All right. He did win the race and we okay. went to victory lane and it was cool. That is awesome. But, I mean, I, you know, I was just, so, I guess I was so even telling the story, I was so floored with doing it. I forgot to tell you that he won, but it was just cool. It's one of those, I'll never be able to pull this off again. Usually when I pull a number out of a hat, it's the hat size. Okay. I just can't, you know, I can't get the right numbers. So anyway, it was just one of those fun deals that happened. And I, I still laugh about it. We've been the good luck charm for a few guys. I still yeah, take credit sure. for being the good luck charm for Jimmy because the first all-star race I ever covered as a journalist, Jimmy Johnson won it. The second mm-hmm. all-star race I ever covered as a journalist, Jimmy Johnson won it. One of the first Coca-Cola 600s I ever covered as a journalist, Jimmy Johnson won it. You, you see where I'm going with this. Yeah. So, yeah so, and, you're, and you're on the payroll, I guess. Uh, yeah, I wish. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah. really, the guy who owes me is Jamie McMurray. Because, yeah, I mean, that good luck picture, man. Yeah, Jamie did a great job of driving. And the number 40 Coors Light pit crew did a fantastic job. And, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. all those guys that, you know, yeah, they did their job. They do their job every week. I don't take a picture of his Bush Series car every week. I mean, right. he didn't win for a few years after that, and I didn't have pit passes to a few to a race after that so, for a long time. There's something to this. Absolutely, I was <laughs> I was Jamie McMurray's good luck charm. So, you know, if Jamie hears this before the Daytona 500, and you want to hook me up with a pit pass to the Xfinity Series race, he's coming back and running the Daytona 500 this year. Yeah, so I'm just cool. saying, Jamie, if you're listening, if you really want another Harley J Earl Trophy. You know who to call. You just got to figure out how to get in touch with me. Well, it's, there's a there's a plane in route coming to your house. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. And I, I think he's actually got a decent shot at running pretty well this year. I think, uh, you know, yeah. obviously Jamie has a reputation for being a very good restrictor plate driver. So I'm excited to see how he does. But, you know, I never saw Jamie win. You know what? I take that back. Ben, one of the first all-star races I ever covered as a journalist, Jamie Murray won it. So I, I'm absolutely Jamie McMurray's good luck charm. I mean, hey, so there you go. I mean, there's no question. You can analyze this 64 ways, and, and you always come out with, "Hey, you know, you know, Aaron Burns is the man," and your phone should be ringing in, <laughs> in a couple of minutes. My phone is in airplane mode right now, but I'm just assuming I'm going to get a message from at least Jamie McMurray's crew chief saying, "Man, you've got to come down." So, and it's funny <laughs> because I told Greg Biffle a similar story. The first time I ever went to Daytona was in '03. Jamie McMurray did not win because we didn't go to the Bush race. Um, but we go to Daytona for the first time. We won tickets. So my dad and I went to Speed Street, which if you've never heard of Speed Street, in the Charlotte area, Speed Street was this huge deal, particularly in the 90s and early to mid-2000s. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if it's going to happen this year, but at that time, th- this was the big deal, and it was even a big deal in the 2010s, which is depressing to say because that, that decade's already over, but they had concerts, drivers would have show cars, you could practice changing tires on a cup car. My dad tried that. Met all kinds of race car drivers there through the years. Um, but we went in 2003, and I met Richard Petty for the first time, which is super cool. I think mm-hmm. I mentioned that in a previous episode. But my dad, I mean, I didn't even, I wasn't even paying attention, right? So we're walking by something with um, General Mills, and they've got a, 
you can sign up and you can win tickets to the Pepsi 400 Daytona. So my dad signs up. I wouldn't even pay attention. Like a couple of weeks later, they call us at home. I'm, I'm out of school by then. And we won. We won mm. the trip to Daytona. So we That's got to go cool. to Daytona. And, you know, I'm hoping that Dale Jr. is going to win. And he led a bunch of laps. And it wound up being a fuel mileage race. Greg Biffle wins a race. And I told Biffle about... 12 years later, I was doing an interview with him for a story for Speed Sport Magazine. And I was like, Greg, you know, you kind of struggled in 03 as a rookie. Not surprising. A lot of people have. And then I go see you race at Daytona and you get your first win. And his first, I mean, just deadpan. His response was, well, do you want to go back to the next race? <laughs> <laughs> so, That's cool. That's fun when you can have those experiences like that and be yeah, able man. to tell the driver. I'm never yeah, going like, to tell Jimmy like that Terry I went still. to Canada. I, mean, I love telling him that story. And I, he, he said, I'm telling you straight up, I've never heard that before. And I'm just really glad you helped us out that day. <laughs> I'm never telling Jimmy that I went to Canada. As far as Jimmy knows, yeah, next well. time I see Jimmy, as far as Jimmy knows, I've never been to Canada. So nobody tell okay, him. Okay, I'll, I'll keep your secret <laughs> for sure. Nobody yeah. tell him that I went okay. to Canada and he never won another cup points race. Because, you know, it's just, it is funny though, Ben, that we, you know, we've had these moments and we've been very blessed to enjoy these kinds of things, yes, we um, have. you know, and, and, and interact with these people. And you kind of forget they take on such a humanizing element. And this is Jimmy Johnson. This is any NASCAR driver. They have mm-hmm. this humanizing element that when you're talking to these folks, whether it's be in an autograph session for an interview, press conference, press event, whatever it is, you just remember they're just people like you and me. You know, they got to drive to work just like everybody else. There's at some point Jimmy Johnson has sat in line waiting for his lunch to drive through, just like everybody else has. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably ordered something healthier than I did at the time, um, but mm-hmm. you know, uh, it, it just it just goes to show you that you know that these folks really are uh, you know good people, and uh, you know we only want to take a little bit of the credit for the fact that we are unequivocally their good luck charms, right, Ben? Yeah, for sure. And I, I'll share another quick one, and we and we can go on here. But I remember once I was at Charlotte Motor Speedway to do an interview with someone. I can't remember one of the staff people there. Mm-hmm. Maybe Marcus Smith. I'm okay. not sure. And so I left the speedway and I went down there. If you turn out the front gate and go left, uh, there's a little, and still is. There's a little convenience store down there. So the Sitco Station. Yeah, man. I've yeah, got gas there a bunch of times. Yeah, and I've got a stop and got gas, and I thought, well, I'm gonna go in and get a coke. I go in this place. I kid you not. I look around, and on the on one knee on the bottom at the bottom shelf where the gum aisle is is Jeff Gordon. <laughs> and I said, I walked up to him and say, Hey, what do you think? I should just tell everybody you're in here. And he's like, No, 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 don't tell anybody. <laughs> kind of laughed. When was but of this? all the people in the world to see buying gas at a at a convenience store, he said, Well, I had to get gas too, so. My car's right out there, and I had to come get some gum, and you know it's just neat. And I, and I think that's what's so cool about NASCAR is that we have access to the drivers, and the fans do too. And as some other sports, it's a little harder to get to that particular superstar. But I think NASCAR has always built itself on family, always built itself on on you know just being accessible to the fans. It's always been that way, and I hope they never change that because. You're like you're right. They're just like we are. They just do this for a living. They're among 40 guys in the entire world of you know billions of people who turn left at the greatest level of stock car racing in the world. But beside that, they're just really cool people, and they are very personable and love to sign autographs. And you could have a rather nice conversation with 
if they had the time, they'll tell you about their farm. They'll tell you about your car, their oh, cars, yeah. their anything. You just and, and they're just normal people, and that's so refreshing to have that in a professional sport. So Ben, you gotta you gotta tell us where did Jeff finish in the next race? Did he win? You know, I don't know, and I I would have to, no, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, is, I would have to nail down when that weekend was, and I'll let's say I'll get back to you on that because now that you got me thinking, I'd like to know. Well, Ben, if it was the 1990s, then I I would bet he definitely did because he he was yeah. he was just uh, a, a, a champ we'll just, there. We'll just go with that. I'm sure. All he right. did. Yeah, man. We'll say it was 98, <laughs> and we know that Jeff Gordon dominated it. It's like old race car drivers. They run better the older they get. <laughs> so <laughs> they this has become the uh, the Aaron and Ben are good luck charms for people story. I, I have I have to say one more. So I sure yeah. I was I was interviewing Dale Jr. in December 2013 at the pit for a story that I was going to do uh, soon after in January of 14. Um, about you know things he was doing off the racetrack so he's doing this autograph session i interview him super nice fantastic experience it was actually the first time i'd ever interviewed dale jr so then uh like a week later um going to go get lunch and we go to i'm trying to think of the name of the place it's in mooresville um it's a it's an asian place in downtown mm-hmm. mooresville i forget i can't remember oh jj wasabi go to jj wasabi there's a car parked out front it's just, it's really really nice white Mercedes, and I walk in and I'm like, man, I wonder who that is. So I walk in, it's it's dead. It's like two thirty in the afternoon, and um, I walk in. There's one. There's people at a booth, and I recognize the guy at the booth. It's Mike Hogue, who was Dale Junior's manager at the time. I'm like, oh, that's cool. It's Mike. I just talked to him. And another guy he's talking to. You can't see him, but he's got a Washington Redskins hat on. And I was like, mm. no way. And it was Dale Jr. So I went up and exchanged pleasantries. And, yeah. um, you know, there wasn't a race soon after that. But then I, I interviewed Dale Jr. again in early February. There was a press event. I mean, if you could call it that. He did media availability. Uh, Dale did and Regan Smith did at an elementary school in Mooresville. Um, you're talking about some of the things that Dale Jr. was doing. And he was donating money to the school. Uh, so I talked to Dale Jr. And I talked to Regan Smith. And I remember thinking... I'm taking pictures of this event too. And I remember thinking like, imagine how wild it would be if like, you know, the Daytona 500 was just a week or two later. This just before they, they're, they're going back to Florida. And I was thinking, man, imagine what it'd be like if they, you know, if they both did really well, that, that would be wild. Well, they run the Xfinity race and Regan Smith wins the Xfinity race and they run the Daytona 500 and Dale Jr. wins the Daytona 500. So maybe it was the right place, right time, whatever it was, but I interviewed those guys and they won the very next race they ran in the points in the points races. So pretty wild stuff, man. We, we've yeah, been, man, you, you need to, you need to call the PR folks and just give them that story and let them bid on who gets to fly you down to Daytona. So <laughs> no, there you go. That sounds like a good idea. I've told a few of them, you know, and, uh, uh, Seems like they're kind of uh, bemused by it, but I have never been propositioned with uh, <laughs> with even free tickets or free swag. But you know what? Gotcha. We just got to keep trying, man. Just yeah. Keep trying. Keep pushing, man. That's it. <laughs> and uh, so so wrapping up with uh, with with the fifth episode. Uh, hopefully, Ben and I, when we come back for episode six, maybe Ben or myself will have run into somebody else and they'll have won a race by then. Uh, we're going to be getting very close to discussing speed weeks at Daytona leading up to what should be a, a, a very good Daytona 500. Danny Hamlin is going for his unprecedented third 500 victory in a row. Uh, I don't think I've ever been Danny's good luck charm. Ben, you ever got any stories of uh, helping no, Danny Hamlin win? Sorry. 
Well, no, not not a lot there. Sorry, Denny. Uh, maybe maybe next time, uh, maybe this time. Who knows? But uh, yeah. I want to thank everybody for listening to episode five of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. We're going to come back very shortly with episode six, uh, faster than Jeff Gordon can leave a gas station if a bunch of people recognize him. So until then, <laughs> until then, I'm Aaron Burns. Uh, ben White, thank you so much for joining thank us. You, thank buddy. you guys for listening. We're going to be back very soon. Until then, take care. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.